I am so thankful each week for those who lead us in music, who help lead us in worship. So thankful for Chris each week. So thankful for the ensemble and the work that they put into this. And may this, or may our time of singing lead us into a study of God's word. And I try to mention this from time to time. It's so easy to lose the thought that we are studying the words of God. And so I invite you to take the very sacred text that you have with you and turn to Second Peter chapter 2. We're going to look at the very first full sentence of verse 13 through verse 17. We ended with the very first part of verse 13 last week. So our ongoing study of Second Peter as Peter continues to denounce and graphically describe the false teachers of his day as a warning to those of us in our day. And we read in verses 13 through 17, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Our first point this morning, our first point this morning is a serious warning. False teaching and false teachers are a constant threat to the church, its families, and to the individuals within the church. We started out chapter 2 listening to Peter say this, and these words ought to be embedded in our minds and in our hearts forever. There will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. There will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Folks, we live in a world right now where entire theological seminaries no longer believe that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, and authoritative word of God. Seminaries founded to teach and to train pastors have completely abandoned a belief in the integrity and accuracy of the Bible and are training up pastors today to go out and to be liberal, false teachers. We live in a world where denominations have abandoned the essential teachings of the Christian faith. We think of most of the Episcopal Church. We think of the United Church of Christ. We think of the Disciples of Christ, um, uh, 
fairly large mainline denomination. We think of the Presbyterian Church USA, PCUSA, significant denominations with long historical backgrounds no longer, no longer holding to the accuracy and inspiration of the Bible. I, I, in this series, I, I was wrestling with trying to look for some way to help make this real and not just something that was generic, you know, false teaching and false teachers. I have an article here that I want to read from, and I pray you'll bear with me because I think it's very significant to what I want to share with you. It's an art article by seminary president Al Mohler, uh, president of one of the most conservative um, and wonderful seminaries in our nation today. It's about a recent report put out by a secular group on preachers who stand in pulpits no longer believing the Bible. In fact, the secular groups, the title of their study is called Preachers Who Don't Believe. Are there clergy who don't believe in God? That is the question posed by a new report that is certain to receive considerable attention and rightly so. The study was conducted by the Center for Cognitive Studies at Tufts University under the direction of Daniel C. Dennett and Linda Lascola. This new report is entitled Preachers Who Are Not Believers. Dinette and Lascola undertook their project with the goal of looking for unbelieving pastors and ministers who continue, who continue to serve their churches in secret disbelief. These ministers represent a microcosm of the theological collapse at the heart of many churches and denominations. Let me repeat that again. These ministers represent a microcosm of the theological collapse at the heart of many churches and denominations. In their report, Danette and Lascola present case studies of five unbelieving ministers, three from liberal denominations and two from conservative denominations. There is a man named Wes, a Methodist, who lost his confidence in the Bible while attending a liberal Christian college and seminary. Wes says, I went to college thinking Adam and Eve were real people. He explained, now he no longer believes that God exists. His church members do not know that he is a closet atheist, but he explains that they are somewhat liberal themselves. His ministerial colleagues are even more liberal, he says, they don't believe Jesus rose from the dead literally. They don't believe Jesus was born of a virgin. Rick, a campus minister for the United Church of Christ, perhaps the most liberal Protestant denomination in our nation, was in a, an agnostic in college and seems to have lost all belief by the time he graduated from seminary. This is a seminary graduate. He chose ordination in the UCC because it required no forced doctrine. He does not believe in all this creedal stuff about the incarnation of Christ or the need for salvation, but he remained in the ministry because these are my people, this is the context in which I work, these are the people that I know. In the pulpit, his mode is to talk as if he does believe because as long as you are talking about God and Jesus in the Bible, that's what they want to hear anyway. 
He said, you're just paraphrasing it in a way that makes sense to them. But he said, we all know language is ambiguous and can be heard in different ways. He doesn't like to call himself an atheist, but he says, if, if not believing in a supernatural theistic God is what distinguishes an atheist, then I am one. Daryl is a Presbyterian who sees himself as a progressive-minded pastor who wants to see this kind of non-doctrinal Christianity given validity in some way. He acknowledges that he is more a pantheist than a theist and thinks that many of the more educated members of his church hold to the same liberal beliefs as his own. And those beliefs or unbeliefs are stated clearly. He says, this pastor says, I reject the virgin birth, I reject substitutionary atonement, I reject the divinity of Christ, I reject heaven and hell in the traditional sense, and I'm not alone. Amazingly, Daryl is candid about the fact that he remains in the ministry largely for financial reasons. It is how he provides for his family. Adam ministers in the Church of Christ, a conservative denomination. After years in the ministry, he began to lose all theological confidence. After reading a series of books, he became convinced that the atheists have better arguments than believers do. He has moved fully into an atheist mode, yet he continues to lead his church in worship. How? This is what he says. Here's how I'm handling my job on Sunday mornings. I see it as play acting. I see myself as taking on the role of a believer in a worship service and performing. This atheist agnostic stays in the ministry because he likes the people and I need the job. John is identified as a Southern Baptist minister who has primarily served as a worship leader. He was attracted to Christianity as a religion of love, but his pursuit of Christianity brought me to the point of not believing in God. As he explains, I didn't plan to become an atheist. I didn't even want to become an atheist. It's just I had no choice if I'm being honest with myself. He is clearly not being honest with his church members. He rejects all belief in God and all Christian truth claims out of hand. He is a determined atheist. Once again, this unbelieving, this unbelieving minister admits that he stays in the ministry because of finances. Early in the report, Danette and Lascola point to a problem of definition. This is very important for us. Many churches and denominations have adopted such fluid and doctrineless identities that determining who is a believer and who is an unbeliever has become difficult. Moeller writes, Preachers who are not believers is a stunning and revealing report that lays bare a level of heresy, apostasy, and hypocrisy that staggers the mind. And this is his advice to churches. If these preachers will not remove themselves from the ministry, they must be removed. If they lack the integrity to resign their pulpits, the churches must muster the integrity to eject them. If they will not out themselves, faithful Christians ought to out them. The caterpillars are hard at work. Will it take a report from a secular organization to awaken the church to the danger? Now, as I have shared with you before, this is nothing new. 
False teaching and false teachers have been around since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. Ever since Satan said, did God really say? And I want to go back to something that we must repeat to each other over and over again. All false teaching begins with an attack on the integrity and accuracy of the Bible. All false teaching begins with an attack on the integrity and accuracy of the Bible. Folks, if we don't believe the Bible is true, anything goes. I just want you to know that. And I think it's important for each and every one of us to have that firmly etched in our hearts. If we don't believe the Bible, then anything goes. In September of 1978, a man named Harold Lenzel released a book that was a watershed book it was a shocking book called The Battle for the Bible. That book revealed or unveiled the fact that there were a growing number of liberal professors in the Southern Baptist Convention. He exposed them to the public. And it became a rallying cry for conservative members of churches who were unaware of what was going on in these colleges and seminaries. The Battle for the Bible, that book led to a great struggle within the Southern Baptist Convention, which eventually led to a split in the convention, the conservatives remaining with the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention, the more liberal and moderate uh, people going with what is now known as the Cooperative Baptist Convention. Now, my wife Lori and I had some first-hand knowledge of this. When we were first married many years ago, we were living in Texas, and we were going to the First Baptist Church of Euless, Texas. Our pastor was a man named James Draper. At the time we attended the church, he was the president of the Southern Baptist Convention and one of the conservative leaders. And we watched, and we watched as he fought for the accuracy, integrity, and inspiration and authority of the Bible. And he became a strong leader within that. And we saw him take many hits and many criticisms for his positions, but he refused to yield, and so must we. Folks, the book, The Battle for the Bible, could have been written in the year 475, and it could have been written in 2016 because it's always the same issue. It is always the battle for the Bible. Peter provides one of the most serious warnings in all of Scripture of the dangers posed by false teachers. Let me just work through this with you, and then I want to end or go into how do we protect ourselves. In verse 13, it says, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have no shame, these false teachers in Peter's day. They do it right in the daytime. There's no, they weren't hiding it. They weren't doing it behind the scenes. They were doing it openly. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 7, it says, For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But not these people, not these men and women, these false teachers. They were unashamedly brash about it. We saw in verse 10 of this chapter that false teachers are bold and they are willful. They are unashamedly arrogant about what they do. I was reading this week that in the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire would allow certain lustful 
totally inappropriate behavior among their citizens if it was done at night. They wanted them to try to behave decently in the daytime and they would look the other way, whatever they did at night, but not these false teachers. Peter says they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes. But then it says this, I want you to mark it down. Mark it down while they feast with you. While they are among you. They are doing this while they pretend to be Christians. Now we don't know what feast this refers to. It could be that they are referring to the Lord's Supper. It could be one of the fellowship, intimate fellowship feasts that the early church used to participate in on a regular basis. But many think it is possible, we don't know this for sure, that they may have been referring to the Lord's Supper and that this may be what the Apostle Paul is referring to in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 20 through 22. This is what he says. When you come together, he is chastising the church at Corinth. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. People were coming together in the name of the Lord's Supper or at least an intimate fellowship feast and they were using it for gluttony and drunkenness. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Paul says you despise the church of God. In verse 14 it says they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. I want you to hold on to that phrase, they enticed unsteady souls. I'm going to come back to that a little later in this message. But Peter calls them accursed children, very much like the verses I quoted for you from Galatians over the last two Sundays, where the, the Apostle Paul says, if anyone brings to you another gospel, a gospel contrary to the one that we taught you, let him be accursed. Let him be under God's curse. Let him be anathema. Let him be damned to hell forever. Same thing that Peter is saying here. And he says, these false teachers have eyes full of adultery. It literally means looking at a woman only for the purpose of using her for sexual pleasure. You don't see her as a human being. You don't see her as a person of respect. You only see her as a sexual object. It says they are insatiable for sin. In verses 15 and 16, it says, Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. They have followed the way of Balaam. If you are not familiar with that story, and I realize not everyone may be here, it's from Numbers, uh, the book of Numbers, I believe it's chapter, or, yeah, chapters 20 
through 22, where Balaam is hired by Balak. Balaam is hired by Balak, the king of Moab, to curse the people of Israel. He saw the people of Israel, Balak, the king of Moab, saw them as a great threat to him. They were a huge nation at this time, and so he hires the false prophet Balaam to come and to curse them. But God so works in Balaam's life that he doesn't curse them. He blesses them. And this happens multiple times. But then as you read on with the story, as you continue on in the Old Testament, Balaam does something that we all need to take note of. He entices. He can't curse them. So he entices the men and women of Israel to involve themselves in idolatry, immorality, and in intermarrying with the nations around them. So all of these Israelites begin to marry Moabite and Midianite peoples, and they begin to worship their gods and bow down to their false idols, It is called the sin of Balaam, son of Peor. And Moses denounces it. But folks, what Balaam did through his false teaching almost brought down, almost destroyed the nation of Israel. As many of their young men and women went after foreign foreign peoples to marry with unbelievers. And at one point, God is so disgusted with Balaam that he sends an angel of the Lord with a drawn sword and Balaam's on his donkey and he's going toward this angel but he doesn't see him but his donkey does and he tries to take Balaam off the path to save him from this and finally Balaam starts to whip his donkey and if you know the story at all his donkey talks to him okay this isn't Mr. Ed stuff It's real, okay? It's real. The donkey is enabled by God to talk with him. And his donkey rebukes him and saves him from being slain by the angel of the Lord. And that is who Peter compares false teachers to. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. He was a prophet for hire. But I want you to notice the very first phrase in verse 15. It said, forsaking the right way. The right way here is a reference to the way of righteousness. It is an Old Testament term that refers back to the law of the Lord. They are forsaking the law of the Lord. To put it in New Testament language, they had forsaken the word of God. I want you to really think that through with me. They were forsaking their belief in the word of God and following the way of Balaam. And then in verse 17, it says, these are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. These false teachers are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. In the Mediterranean region of the Middle East, during dry periods, it is not unusual for small pockets of fog or mist to travel through their area. And it looks like it's going to bring a lot of rain and it makes people hopeful. 
but it actually brings almost no moisture whatsoever. It often just passes over. And you learn when you're there that these fogs are mists, are bring no real promise of rain. Good example right now. It's been pretty dry around here. And we'll see the clouds gathering and sometimes they get dark and we either get very little rain or we get no rain. That's what these false teachers are compared to. John Piper writes this. Picture yourself in the desert with a parched tongue longing for water to satisfy your thirst. You see an oasis with trees and grass. You run, throw yourself down by the spring and it is dry as a bone. These false teachers offer thrills and insight and freedom, but in reality, they are empty and barren. They are like mists that seem to promise rain for the land, but are quickly blown away. Oh, what a need there is in the church for discernment between waterless springs and springs of living water. The one bubbles up unto eternal life. The other sinks down into the gloom where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. We must become a deeply discerning people. We must become a deeply discerning people. Peter ends this section by saying about these false teachers, for them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. It's very consistent what he's been saying throughout the chapter. Utter darkness in some English translations is blackest darkness. For these false teachers, God is reserving blackest darkness. It is a direct reference to hell itself and the blackest parts of hell. Well, our second point this morning is false teachers and unsteady souls. I want to come back to the middle sentence of verse 14. They entice unsteady souls. If you remember nothing else this morning, I want you to remember that. They entice unsteady souls. False teachers love to prey on those who are unstable in their grasp of the truth. Peter borrows a word from the fisherman who casts out a lure to catch an unsuspecting fish. They cast out their lure hoping that the fish will be attracted to it and bite on it. And that's what the false teachers hope you will do, that, they, that you will find their teaching attractive, alluring. Folks, I want to share something with you. Many false teachers are very gifted speakers. Let me say that again. Many false teachers are very gifted teachers and communicators with a lot of charisma. Beware of following people just because of their charisma or their personality. Be very careful. Satan loves to use those kinds of people. But they try to ensnare men and women who are not firmly established in the truth. And oh, what an important reminder for us that we need to strive over and over again to be firmly established in the essential truths of the Christian faith. However, this sentence, they entice unsteady souls, refers to more than that. They also prey on intellectual doubters. 
Some of our young people here are very familiar with this. When you meet someone on a college campus or some other place, some young person who has declared himself or herself to be an atheist, they are usually really smart. They are usually very intellectual and their intellects have become their God. And they have begun, begun to doubt the Bible. Can I really believe that? Can any intelligent, reasoning person really believe that? And so false teachers love to prey on intellectual doubters. This also means that false teachers love to prey on wounded Christians. Wounded Christians. There's a Christian who tragically loses a loved one. There's a Christian who was hurt by a pastor or by another Christian in their church. And they're wounded. And they're disgruntled. They're disoriented. And they become pray for false teachers. Oh, I say to you, and there may be some of you among us this morning, if you are wounded, run to God and his word. People will let you down. But God will never let you down. If you are wounded or have been wounded by something or someone, run to God and run to his word. Also, false teachers love to pray on the careless believer. They love to pray on the Christian who has good head knowledge, but they become careless in their Christian life. And maybe that describes some of us here this morning. We grew up in the church, but, you know, we don't read our Bibles much anymore. We're kind of hit and miss at church, so we don't always find ourselves under the preaching of the Word. But you know what? I, I know what I believe. I, I know the right things to say. I know the right words to say. Oh, let me tell you, you are a prime candidate for false teaching. And let us remember, when we remove ourselves from the preaching of the word. No one deceives us more than we deceive ourselves. When you take yourself out from under the preaching and teaching of the word of God, whether it be in church or in your private devotions, no one will deceive you more than you will deceive yourself. And one writer said this, and I thought this was really interesting. He said, false teachers love to prey on Christians who neglect to put on the armor of God on a daily basis. What a challenge that is. False teachers love to prey on Christians who neglect to put on the armor of God on a daily basis. Well, I want to end with this. How can a church protect itself against the serious dangers and threats posed by false teaching and false teachers. How can we as a church protect ourselves? And some of what I'm going to say will be pretty obvious to you, but I believe I need to hear it and you need to hear it again and again. First, we must teach and preach with every breath that we have that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, fully authoritative word of God, period. Period. We must continue to teach that. We must continue to preach that. I think I've shared this with you before, but there's an old saying that says, 
The Bible says it. I believe it. And that settles it. But I listened to a sermon one time in which the pastor said, well, that's a good saying, but I think we need to shorten it. Actually, the Bible says it. That settles it, whether you believe it or not. The Bible says it, and that settles it. doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. The authority, integrity, and accuracy of the Bible does not depend on your belief. It is given to you to either believe or to reject. Secondly, we must establish strong doctrinal stability in the word. We must have a firm doctrinal statement that says here is where we stand and here is what we believe. If you remember in that report I read to you that many churches and denominations no longer put an emphasis on their statement of faith or their what they believe about the great doctrines of the Christian faith. And I, I want to throw out a challenge to you. Not all, but I challenge you to look on some church websites and go to what we believe. You will see those pages becoming shorter and shorter. Sometimes they're simply limited to our core values. When you look on there and you don't really know exactly what it is they believe or where they stand. That is a common trend today. Third, we must labor tirelessly to ground our children and all new converts in the truth of Scripture. We must labor again and again to help all of our people, all of our children from the smallest ages and new converts up to the oldest ages to be grounded in the truth of Scripture. I mentioned Al Mohler before, the president of Southern Seminary. And our elders and deacons have been working for the last two plus years through his book, The Conviction to Lead, 25 Principles for Leadership that Matters. And in the last chapter of that book, he talks about a, lead, a leader's legacy. What is the legacy that you will leave behind? And throughout the whole book, he has said, your belief in the essential truths of the faith, the convictions that you hold to, are the most important thing you have as a church. And he said that one of these days he's going to retire as the president of the seminary, and he knows that there will be another man who will follow him as the president of the seminary. And he says, I know he may have a different personality than I do. He may have a very different leadership style than I do. He said, that's okay. But he said this, he better not change any of our beliefs. This is what he writes. If my successor attempts to subvert the truths upon which this institution is established, I will do everything I can to stop that subversion in its tracks, even if it means haunting my successor from the grave by memory. I love that. And I think that every pastor in this church, every elder, every deacon, every Sunday school teacher, every small group leader, every Awana teacher, every counselor at the Beacon of Hope, every teacher in Christ Cadets, whatever the ministry may be, we ought to make a covenant together 
that if when we die, this church tries to change what we believe in, together we're going to rise up from the grave and haunt them. Let's do it. I mean, let's rise up from the grave and haunt them. Let these beliefs become so embedded in us that they will be carried on for generations until the Lord comes. This church, by God's grace, totally by God's grace, is 161 years old this year. And it has continued to believe and preach the gospel. God forbid that we should change any of that. It is our responsibility to pass the baton on to the next generation so that they might stand as firmly as God, by his grace, has allowed us to do. But this is not enough. This is not enough, folks. Number four, we must be men and women of strong Christian character who strive for biblical love, biblical unity, and biblical forgiveness. We need to be people who model the Christian life for those who come behind us. It is not enough just to have head knowledge. Folks, it is not enough to fill our children's minds with knowledge about the Bible. Maybe there's kids that can quote 200 verses. That's great. But are they seeing us model for them biblical Christianity? Do we love one another? Is there biblical unity among us, which I spent a long, a long time teaching about in 1 Peter? Do we forgive one another? One of our men this week, Jimmy Harps, was, was talking with me and he said he was listening to a radio, Christian radio program where they were interviewing a wife who had been in her marriage for years, a long, healthy, wonderful Christian marriage. And, and the interviewer said, what's the key? What's the key to your marriage? And you know what she said? Forgiveness. Folks, you can't have a long, happy marriage without forgiveness. You can't. And you cannot have a strong, healthy church unless we are willing to forgive one another. We will not always do the right thing. We will not always make the right decisions. But we need to be a people who forgive one another over and over again. And our children need to see that among us. Number five, and our last one, we must strive over and over again for childlike faith. We must believe the Bible like a little child. I've shared this with some of you privately, but I come across articles on a fairly regular basis or every once in a while meet someone who grew up in a good Bible-teaching church, and now they're skeptical. Not sure they really believe the Bible anymore. Not sure they really believe all those things they grew up being taught. My heart weeps for them. I want you to know something about me. By God's grace, I'm going in the opposite direction. You know what my prayer is as I get older? I want to be like the children in Mrs. Kroll's class. I want to be like the children in the toddler's class. I want to be like the children in Dave and Margaret Kastner's Sunday school class. I want to believe it all. Folks, as best as I can tell you, I believe everything. I want you to know that. 
from the first word of Genesis to the last word of Revelation, I believe it's all true. Every miracle, every teaching, I believe it happened exactly like the Bible says it does. And you can call me naive, you can call me anti-intellectual, you can call me anything you want, but I believe it all. And folks, if I ever stop believing it, you can shoot me and put me in a grave because I have, am of no use to you. If I ever stop believing what the Bible teaches, I am of absolutely no use to this church. God help us to protect our church, to protect our children from the ever-present danger of false teaching. We're going to close with the song in Christ alone and I specifically chose this song because it is such a great doctrinal song and it says in Christ alone my hope is found this cornerstone this solid ground firm through the fiercest fiercest drought and storm at the end of the first stanza it says here in the love of Christ I stand at the end of the second stanza it says here in the death of Christ I live at the end of the third stanza it says bought with the precious blood of Christ at the end of the fourth stanza it says here in the power of Christ I'll stand oh let us stand with Christ and in Christ and God help us never to waver let's pray together father you have been good to us as a church. But we know that there are many wolves in sheep's clothing seeking to harm and destroy the church. Help us to always be alert. Help us to always be on guard. Help us to never waver from the, the rock-solid truth of your word. For we ask this and plead for this in Jesus' name, amen.